Well, by now, you know the drill. Um, you get batteries for your flashlights, you get candles, you get propane for the grill, or maybe the camp stove. If you're on a, on a well like we are, then you got to have extra water. You fill up the bathtub, you fill up five-gallon buckets. Um, you got dry firewood and kindling, you charge your cell phone, you gas up the cars, you buy bread and milk. I have no idea why. But everyone else is doing it, so you must be going to need it. Um, you find the battery-operated radio, and now you're ready. Okay? You, are, you are ready for the storm that the weatherman has said is coming. But what if the storm doesn't come? Okay, what, if, what if it doesn't come? What if there isn't even one snow this winter? Or the next, or the one after that. What if we go a decade without snow in the triangle? You know, I'm talking, <laughs> talking Wake Forest, Roseville, Youngsville, the triangle, right? <laughs> what if we go a decade? What if we go two decades or more with no snow? Um, what happens then? Well, the batteries go bad in the flashlight, or you use them for something else, and the, the water that you saved, you use on the plant some really dry summer, and you forget to replace it, and the kindling is wet, and the firewood is green, and the propane, propane tank for the grill never got filled up after you used it last summer. See, it's hard to stay ready for a long time. It is. We just, we're not naturally inclined towards long-term readiness. It's funny, though, the weathermen will tell you that the likelihood of a big storm doesn't decrease because one hasn't happened for a while. But it feels like it does. It feels like because it hasn't happened, it's not going to happen. And Jesus is mindful of our tendency to think like this as we think about his return. It hasn't happened, so it's probably not going to happen. It's been, it's been 2,000 years. And while that actually increases the probability that his return could come now, it feels like it decreases it. And so we end up living unready. And we start to bet that it's not going to happen anytime soon because it hasn't happened for so long. And as a result of that, temptation seems more alluring because it's increasingly unlikely in our minds anyway that he would come now. Not after all these years. The most dangerous kind of thinking is thinking this way. He hasn't come for 2,000 years. He's not likely to come now. I know I need to be ready, but I got some stuff I want to do first. 
If you find yourself tempted that way, Jesus had you in mind when he told the stories that we're going to look at today in Matthew chapter 25. So I'd like to pray for us and turn in your Bibles there. We'll, we'll, we'll dive right into Matthew 25. Father, help us. Be merciful to us. Ready our hearts now. Sweep away foolishness and grant us wisdom. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, Jesus helps those of us who get lost in the details of his stories by, in this first story, he gives us the punchline in the last verse. The bottom line is this, verse 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Watch, be alert, stay awake. And in giving us this bottom line of this story we're about to look at, he lines it up with all the stories he just told in the previous chapter. Um, he said that the re his return would be like it was the coming of the flood in Noah's day, right? Totally unexpected with disastrous consequences for people that weren't ready. He said it would be like two men working in a field. Suddenly, unexpectedly, in the middle of an ordinary day, one of them will be taken to judgment, one, the other one will be left behind. He said it would be like a thief coming at night to break into your house. Um, he said you need to be faithful and wise. You be found doing what the master charged you to do when your master unexpectedly returned. And we, we underscored it with this. You remember 24:44? Anybody commit that to memory this week? Matthew 24:44. Okay. Here it is. Therefore you must also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 24:44. Okay. Live ready, Jesus is saying. Um this, this has made sermon titles really easy the last three weeks. We had Live Ready, Live Ready 2, and today, Live Ready 3. Okay. Jesus, it's fascinating. He's about two or three days from the cross. And so this is his last opportunity for instruction with his disciples. And he is teaching this with story after story after story, back to back to back to back. Be ready. Okay. Live ready. This must, this must really matter a great deal to Jesus, that he places this kind of emphasis on it in his final teaching to his disciples. Now, in the story we're about to read, Jesus' concern is helping us live ready for the long haul should his coming, which he anticipated, be delayed. And it has now for 2,000 years. So this story has increasing relevance for us. Here it is, starting in 25, verse 1. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. So Jesus is evidently ad adapting um, the wedding parties of their day. Uh, Grant Osborne describes it this way. He says, marriage celebrations lasted seven days. Seven days. He says, but this story centers on the first night as the groom is on his way to the bride's home in order to escort her back to his home. The bride sends out her friends to meet him halfway. And since it's night, 
they take torches with them. Okay? So that's the picture. These virgins are, are like bridesmaids. They're friends of the bride. And they're sent halfway, perhaps at night, evidently, to meet the groom. And Jesus' story divides these ten bridesmaids into two groups. The wise and the foolish. And the foolish, it's interesting, the word that Jesus uses, the word that gives us our word, moron. Okay? So you got the morons and the wise. Okay? It's not a compliment to be a moron. You do not want to be a moron. I grew up, you, some of you know this, I grew up in a little town in the Midwest called Metamora, Illinois, and we were dubbed Metamorons. Um, I preferred Metamorians for obvious reasons because nobody wants to be a moron. You don't want to be a moron. To be a fool like this, a moron, spiritually speaking, um, isn't just a derogatory thing. It's a downright dangerous thing. Jesus used the same kind of language back in chapter 7. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man. There's that word, a moron, who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great, great was the fall of it. The difference is simple. The wise were prepared. They brought oil. The foolish did not. If you want a bumper sticker, here it is. Got oil? Okay. And of course, of course, they have T-shirts. You can actually buy these somewhere. Um, what's up with the oil? Why is it such a big deal? Jesus is going to tell us. As the bridegroom was delayed, okay, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. Okay. Now the bridegroom, who is Jesus in our story, comes at a time when they did not expect him. For us, if you've been reading Matthew 24 and 25, the theme of surprise is no longer a surprise. You're going to be surprised when Jesus comes back. But there's a new twist here. You know, back in 24, people were walking in fields, they're working at the mill, and it seemed like he came back sooner than expected. But here in this story, he comes back later than expected. Either way, our calculations concerning his return are always off, it seems. And so, Jesus says, live ready. Always, always live ready for my return. The foolish, those foolish bridesmaids said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealer's. And buy for yourselves. Now here, it, it, Jesus is not anti-sharing here. That's not the point uh, of his teaching. The emphasis is in different places. First, the emphasis is on the folly of being unprepared. This is what made the bridesmaids 
fools, morons. They had decided not to be ready. That wasn't their intent, obviously, but that was their choice. For reasons unbeknownst to us, they put themselves in a situation where they wouldn't be ready. They essentially bet that he wouldn't come later. He'd come right away. They bet that he wouldn't come then, and they were wrong. Now, there's another emphasis here. It's lesser, but you get a sense for the, the individuality. It's one of the rare times in Scripture where it's so individual, so personal. Um, readiness can't be borrowed from somebody else. It was up to them to be ready. They couldn't rely on someone else to be ready for them. And that's how it will be on that day when Jesus comes. Your readiness is just that. It's yours. It's not your spouses. It's not your parents. It's not your friends. It's not your pastors. It's not your small group leaders. It's yours. <clears throat> readiness, readiness is not something that can be borrowed. Well, Jesus continues and says, while they were going to buy those five foolish bridesmaids, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. And afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Now, wedding feast is a good thing. It's, it's worth sitting through the wedding to get to the feast. Okay? It's a good thing. It's one of the happiest parties you can go to. Um, so it's not surprising that when the Bible wants to talk about what it's like to be with Christ, the wedding feast is one of its images it most happily uses. <clears throat> Jesus used it back in, in chapter 22. He says, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So that's, what, that's what the kingdom of heaven's like. Book of Revelation says this. The angel says to, to John, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. See, to be shut out of the wedding feast is to be excluded from relationship with the groom, who is Christ. When he says, I don't know you, um, historians tell us this was, a, this was a, a saying that rabbis used to use for, for disciples they no longer wanted to associate with. Okay? These are, this, the professor does not want you in his class anymore. Okay? He's saying, essentially, I don't want anything to do with you. And you pick that up again in Jesus' earlier teaching in Matthew in chapter 7. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, same language, right? Will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. See, not everyone Jesus is repeatedly teaching who claims for Jesus to be Lord, not everyone who claims to be a Christian, not everyone who goes to church, not even everyone who might go to this church, will get into the wedding feast that is heaven, the kingdom of heaven. 
That is lasting communion with Christ Himself. Not everyone who says the right things will get in. Not everyone who's mixed in with those who get in will get in. Not everyone who thinks they'll get in will get in. And there will come a time, Jesus says, when it's too late to make amends. When it's too late to stop being foolish. When knocking and seeking and asking are no longer honored by the gracious Christ. There will come a time, it's going to come unexpectedly, Jesus says, when that door is closed. So live ready now. Live ready always. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is perhaps Jesus' most urgent teaching. Luke records this teaching this way in Luke chapter 13. Someone said to Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he'll answer you. I do not know where you come from. Live ready. Don't gamble that his coming is somehow less likely because of his delay. Peter warns us that there are going to be people who are going to say this to you and try to encourage this belief in you. In 2 Peter 3, it says, Know first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and this is what they'll say. Where's the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Down just a couple more verses. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. With a 2,000-year delay, what does it mean for us to live ready and not be lulled to sleep and lured into sin by His delay? Jesus answers that with another story. second story you want to look at today starts in verse 14. It will be like a man, his coming will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then, master went away. So the setting for the story is plain enough. You got three servants really split into two groups. The first two um, are of a kind. They are... They're given the same uh, uh, five talents and two talents. And then the third is quite different. He's given one. The only thing that really needs clarifying here is, is that servants are not necessarily like abject slaves as we think of them today. They um, often shared in the profits of the master. Um, some have even likened them to almost to business partners in certain arrangements. And then it's helpful to clear up 
what is a talent when he gives them five talents, two talents? Does that mean some of them can sing and dance, some can only dance? Um, not, not a, that, that may have application to that, but um, a talent was their largest denomination of money. And as we're going to see, it was really large, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. So the one who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So again, the contrasts here are obvious. The two, two first servants are of a kind. They eagerly apply their initiative to take responsibility for their master's trust in them and give him a remarkable return on his, his trust. But the third takes a radically different course. He just buries his master's money. And as you can imagine, the master has radically different responses to these different investment strategies. Here they are. After a long time, okay, again, there's a delay after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Again, the master has delayed. Okay. What takes place now takes place after a prolonged absence of the master. But when he comes, he's going to settle accounts. And these first two servants approach him in identical fashion. And his reward to them is identical. There's no difference in the language of, of his reward to each the five talent and the two talent servant. So the reward is not based on how gifted you are, but rather how faithful you were with the gift given you. And his reward to them is threefold. First, his affirmation. Well done. Well done. Don't underestimate the significance of this. When a dad says it to a son, when a mom says it to her daughter, when a boss says it to his employee, when a coach says it to one of his players, a teacher to a student, this can have life-shaping import. Well done. I'm pleased with you. The power of an attaboy or an girl is not to be undervalued, especially if it comes from God, who's the master in our story. That's the first part of the reward. Second part is that they had been faithful with little, now they get to be responsible for much. And some of you are thinking, oh great, more responsibility. What kind of reward is that? 
I was hoping for a vacation. Um, but, you know, you think about it. To be affirmed and valued and trusted by your boss, by your teacher, by your coach. You know, that's invaluable. And, and again, slaves prospered when their masters did often. And that, as we'll see, is the case, appears to be the case here. And this whole idea of being faithful with little, that would be five talents and two talents, right? They were faithful with a little, now they're going to get to be faithful with much. Um, putting a modern monetary value on a talent is difficult, but here's the range that I've, that I've found that seems to be most, uh, makes the most sense to me. A talent is worth between $800,000 and $1.8 million. That's a talent. So let's just round it off for our purposes to a cool million and say that one servant he entrusted five million to and another two million. Even the guy who got one talent was amazingly entrusted. Okay. That's just a little. What must the master's much be like? I mean, this is a whopper of a reward. Dale Bruner puts it this way. He says, There is going to be an honors banquet to outdo all honors banquets, at which the joy of the Lord's esteemed will be transporting. Jesus wants disciples to look forward to the greatest celebration of their lives. Okay. That's what this language of talents involves. We are dealing with a very wealthy, very trusting, very generous master. That's the second part of their reward. The third part of their reward was to enter into the joy of their master. Um, I imagine a joy as lavish as his bank account. A joy more than millions. Okay. It's, it's lavished on these servants. Uh, it's the greatest joy. Christian philosopher Dallas Willard wrote that God is the most joyous being in the universe. And he illustrated it with this story. He says, while I was teaching in South Africa some time ago, <clears throat> a young man took me out to see the beaches near his home in Port Elizabeth. He says, I was totally unprepared for the experience. I had seen beaches, or so I thought. But when we came over the rise where the sea and land opened up to us, I stood in stunned silence and then slowly walked toward the waves. Words cannot capture the view that confronted me. He says, I realized that God sees this all the time. He sees it, experiences it, knows it from every possible point of view. This and billions of other scenes like and unlike it. In this and billions of other worlds. Great tidal waves of joy must constantly wash through his being. He says, we pay a lot of money to get a tank with a few tropical fish in it and never tire of looking at their beauty and marvelous forms and movements. But God has seas full of them, which he constantly enjoys. We're enraptured, he says, by a well-done movie sequence or by a few bars from an opera or lines from a poem 
We treasure our great experiences for a lifetime, and we may have very few of them, but He is simply one great and inexhaustible and eternal experience of all that is good and true and beautiful and right. Willard concludes this way. He says, all of the good and beautiful things from which we occasionally drink, tiny droplets of soul-exhilarating joy, God continuously experiences in all their breadth and depth and richness. So the master says, enter into my joy. My joy. Wow. What will that be like? And I think this... This is what it means to have oil in your lamp, okay? This is what it means to live ready. It means to live for joy, to live for maximum joy, to not settle for little sinful joys, little side roads. Live for the joy of the Master, the joy of God, to live for his well done, his, his attaboy, his girl one day, proclaimed over our life's work, to be faithful with a little in expectation of having the joy of God lavished on us. To live your life for the pleasure of God, I think that's what Jesus means by living ready. To live each day that way, to offer up each task that way. You'll be ready if you live that way. This is the oil that you must be prepared with, a practiced faith. Okay. Not, just, not just hearing, but living. When you live for what these first two servants live, live for, that's what it means to live ready. Okay. Now, Jesus slows way down as he focuses now on that third servant. Verse 24. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. Okay. Now, this is, this is the servant's spin on why, what he did and why. Okay. If you listen closely, this is what he's saying. It's your fault, master, that I did what I did. It's because you're so mean. That's why I had to do what I had to do. Now, it's interesting the other two servants didn't feel that way. And the master has a very, very different assessment. The next verse, 26. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. Now, What's significant here is that the master zeroes in on what was really driving the servant, right? He's wicked and he's lazy like a sloth, okay? That's really lazy, okay? 
If you're lazy like a sloth, that's lazy. And the master sees through all the spin that came his way, and that's what he says. Dale Bruner has interesting insights about how the servant spoke of the master and how the master responded. He says, the Lord, again, the master is the Lord, right? The Lord leaves out the servant's description of him as a hard man because it is not true. He didn't say anything about being hard. But he leaves in the servant's description of his sovereignty and incalculable omnipotence because it is true. And because genuine belief in this truth should have had different consequences. Far from being a hard man, this master is an infinitely good one as we see in his entrusting talents to his servants at all. Millions of dollars entrusted to his servants. One commentator said, He knows him not who thinks him hard. God is love. Clearly, this servant has failed to live for the master. Instead, he has lazily lived for himself. And so the master says, take the talent from him, and this is interesting, give it to the one who has the ten talents. So the guy who had five talents got five more. He still has all ten. Okay? The master did not reclaim them. So one way or another, either the master now is entrusting $10 million to this guy or has he given $10 million to this servant? Either way, this is wild generosity. And now he has 11 And that's still just a little. It's just a foretaste of the master's muchness. The emphasis here, clearly, it's not just on the loss of the one servant, but on the gain of the other. And that's what it will be like on that day for those who live ready and for those who don't. Okay. Verse 29, to everyone who has Will be more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus, Jesus makes it very clear once again. His coming is going to be a day of unbelievable reward. Okay? And unfathomable loss. The greatest of losses. This is, this is hellacious language. It takes us back, this language of judgment takes us back to the last chapter we've we just been talking about in chapter 24 talks about cutting him in pieces and putting him with the hypocrites. And in that place there will be, will be what? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Same, same expression. This is what awaits the unready. Those who profess but do not practice their faith. 
those who pretend, those who go through the motions and are, and are not found ready as a result, those who bet on his delay more than his coming. I'm going to sin now and enjoy the fruits of that, and later on, I'll be faithful. Jesus says, that's being a moron. You don't want to do that. Listen, listen again to Jesus' words from Luke. Someone said to Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he'll answer you, I do not know where you come from. Are you betting more on his delay or his coming? Which is shaping your actions, your choices more today, that he will come or that he won't? See, this passage is meant to be a tremendous encouragement to persevere in faithfulness to those of us who believe. You are going to be rewarded beyond your wildest dreams. But it is also meant to be a spiritual kick in the pants for those of us who are betting that He's not going to come soon. So we just stay where we are on the fringe, living with one foot in the church and one foot out. Living one foot in the kingdom, we think, and one foot out. Saying one thing and living another. Okay. Jesus says, there is coming a day when the door of invitation will swing closed and it will happen when you do not expect it. And then you will truly wish that you had been living ready. Now, by His mercy, this is not that day. At least this is not that hour. And so you have a chance this morning to get ready. To stop pretending and masquerading and postponing and dabbling and say, I want to live for the reward of the master. I want to have Christ's payment for my sins now, and I want to follow him as my Lord now. I don't want to put it off anymore. I'm done being a fool. I'm not going to be played for a moron, spiritually speaking. And so we should pray. Would you bow with me? Lord, strengthen your church. May the faithful be encouraged that your delay only makes it all the more likely that your coming will be soon. We are nearer your coming than any time in history. Encourage your church. Encourage the faithful. The sacrifices they are making, it's worth it. Lord, bless those who choose to walk in joy 
and not merely in fun.